Welcome to the Irish Spark Podcast. Our guest today is Claire Daly, TD, who gives us an account of her fact-finding mission to Venezuela. We recorded this interview a number of weeks ago, and the situation has somewhat changed since then, with Trump publicly stating that he's lost interest and patience with the issue, and has since focused his energy on a potential war with Iran. The US war machine is searching for a target, and it's only a matter of time before it lands on one. Alright, how's it going Claire? Can you introduce yourself to the people listening? Well, I'm a TD in Dublin Fingal, I suppose. That's a bit of a cross to bear, but uh, I see myself as a community activist, a former trade unionist and just a basic campaigner for ordinary people. You recently went abroad on a trip to Venezuela. Can you tell us why you decided to do that? Why did we go? Okay, look, myself and, and my colleague Mick Wallace, we decided to go ourselves. We were watching what the Irish government were doing. We were really gobsmacked at the thought that they would recognise as president a person who'd never been elected without any precedent in international law. We found that really scary and we were watching the situation deteriorating, being ratcheting up. We knew of troops from America being assembled around Venezuela's borders. There was the big push to deliver the humanitarian aid. So we said, look, we're hearing about a country on the verge of civil war. There's, it's been presented like they're nearly split 50-50 with one side supporting Guaido, one side supporting Maduro. Let's go over and see it for ourselves. Now, as it turned out, we ended up getting there a couple of days after the efforts to deliver the misnamed humanitarian aid. Things have receded a little bit since then, but we wanted to see it for ourselves. So we organised this trip ourselves. It happened to coincide with a, an international people's assembly, which the government had organised. And we went to that for a couple of days and we actually attended a, a meeting on the final day of that, which Maduro himself uh, addressed, which we found pretty interesting. And how long were you there for? A week in Caracas only. And what did you do in that period of time? We started off and we linked up with the people who organised the People's Assembly. We participated in some events that they'd organised. So like that took us out to the Barrios. We went to Chavez Grave, which is over the city of Caracas. Uh, and we wandered about the streets ourselves. Now, the time we were there actually coincided with the carnival weekend. Carnivals are huge in South America and it's gas, you know, people here go on about the, the government and propaganda and where you've been brainwashed and all this, but actually here you had an international gathering in a hotel in Caracas at the time of one of the biggest outpourings on the streets of Caracas to at the time to recognise the 30th anniversary of, of the Caracas O, which was the original uh, uprising, I suppose, in response to food price hikes which was ruthlessly suppressed by, by the Venezuelan establishment at the time. That was the movement, I suppose, that was the, the forerunner and gave, the, gave rise to Chavez. It was the 30th anniversary of that. There were hundreds of thousands out on the streets of Caracas and nobody even told us that it was on. We were watching on television going, where is that on? They were supposed to bring us and they didn't get around to organising to bring us to it. So, I mean, if you wanted to, you know, brainwash people, that's where you'd be bringing them. And myself and Mick at one stage wandered out onto the street. We said, the street outside the hotel or around the corner is all cornered off. What's going on here? Now, most of the others were just in the hotel, like, you know, because they kind of tell you, oh, don't go out a bit on your own. Right, you know, couldn't be safe. Well, generally in the evening, but we didn't find that to be true anyway. Uh, but the streets were all, and there was this unbelievable carnival of like tens of tens of thousands 
of kids, of teachers, of parents, all dressed up in Caribbean costumes, the like of which you'd get here, starting the weekend of carnival festivals, singing, dancing, the whole lot, uh, pipe bands, uh, you know, it was just, uh, you know, as good as Patrick's Day here, probably better, but with the nice weather. Uh, and then you kind of contrast that, but nobody at the conference even told us that, that was on. You're talking about carnivals and festivals. When you read the media, they portray a completely different story altogether. Apparently you can't even get toilet paper and eggs. There was even a story about some people eating zoo animals because of the lack of food. There's no humanitarian crisis in Venezuela. There is an economic crisis and life is very difficult for some people. I'll maybe make some points about that. But there, there, there's loads of eggs. We're sick looking at eggs. Um, uh, you know, tomatoes, vegetables, everything. We pictures of the shops like with loads of stuff in it. Now there is a problem with the currency. The hyperinflation means those on, on wages have seen the value of their wages absolutely plummet. So they need to rely more on the, on the subsidised shops. And like everything else, when things are centrally and sometimes bureaucratically managed, there's problems with maybe some of that stuff being hoarded and other people trying to sell it to make money on the subsidised stuff and all that type of stuff that you'd kind of expect. But yes, people can get food. It can be more difficult. And sometimes they run out of some things. But the shops were plentiful and when we went into, I mean, and I'm not even talking about posh East Caracas, which we went into where you had the gated communities and the SUVs with the tinted windows and giving the keys to the driver when you're in the restaurant and all that kind of stuff. I'm not even talking about those areas with the exclusive restaurants, which we visited and passed by just to see it. But I mean, kind of downtown, correct? The ordinary city centre. Uh, the, I suppose the, the Henry Street, O'Connell Street equivalent, there was plenty of food, there were, the restaurants, there was people in it. Now nobody was using cash. Nobody can use cash because it's valueless. Nobody can get money. The ATMs, they have to queue. And when they queue, they get, they're limited to getting about between 500 and 1500 bolivars. That's about half a dollar. So why would you be bothered? So we went into a little bar to get a drink. Loads of people coming in and out, some people eating food, everybody pays with a debit card, nobody kind of handles cash. So you see the differences like that, but like the bars and restaurants, plenty of people in them and the carnival weekends, everybody was going to the beach. I suppose there, it's a different type of life as well in that electricity is free, water's free, transport's basically free, like the metro's free. Okay, you're supposed to pay two bolivars, but nobody pays it and nobody asks you to pay it. Petrol, you'd fill your car for about 10 cents. So like it's basically free and all that. So and the accommodation is basically free. Like we went to an apartment block in one of the barrios. And again, we said, well, what type of people live here? And like, do they pay rent? And they said, oh, yeah, no, no, they'd be given. And like, what would it be? Uh, uh, not very much. So we kind of got the distinct impression that there kind of might be a rent levy, but nobody kind of really pays it. Nobody really collects it. And who gets these houses, we asked. How do you get a house? Well, you put your name on a list or whatever, and it's kind of done on need. So a bit chaotic, and I'm not putting forward those things saying that all of that is totally desirable, because it isn't. You can't sustain that type of system. And we would be critical of the government for not putting in place a better system than that. And it's probably one of the reasons why the infrastructure has been undermined. Now, it's not the primary reason. The primary reason is the stranglehold being put on by the Americans in particular. But the system is chaotic. Like, they should organise themselves better than that. You can't have that, like, really, either, where people are. It's that chaotic. What was your reaction to what you saw happening on the ground floor, walking the streets in your days there? Loads of people are not happy with the government. 
That's absolutely true. The same way as loads of people in Ireland aren't happy with the government, you know, and in plenty of countries, the same thing. It's definitely not this idea that it's a dictatorship and that people are being, you know, kind of shot in their beds and journalists being arrested and all this type of thing. Absolute and utter nonsense, you know. Is there state, state TV channels that sort of sure now 24 7 pictures of maduro and happy campers and all that yeah there is absolutely you know you kind of get that you kind of like rte probably with leo morning noon and night or a, a various version of it uh, and maybe a more extreme version of that but loads of people give out and they have the freedom to give out everybody has a political opinion and loads of people have different political opinions so we heard different levels of support for maduro and it ranged from people saying he had about of 20% hardcore support to about 33%. And that sort of was asking a lot of people from a lot of different backgrounds, from poorer areas to city centre to affluent areas. That was the borderline. Everybody agreed his support was somewhere between 25 and 33%. But they reckoned like the support for Chavismo or for what was trying to be done with the Venezuelan economy was at about 60%. And then the right-wing opposition opposed to that was at about 40%. But of that, that split all over. And the reason why Maduro won the election, and he did win the election, is that the 40% on the other side couldn't get their act together. And that people would have said, is that, yeah, they'd say, do you, do you like Maduro? No, not really. Or people say, yeah, he's grand, or I don't care about the government. You know, the usual sort of stuff, but nobody supported Guaido. So while they don't necessarily like the government, some people do, some people, we met people who work for the government who thought they were doing their best. And you get plenty of people who are saying, look, they're doing their best, it's not great. He doesn't have the charisma of Chavez. But actually he was an interesting enough guy, like we, we attended a speech that he spoke at. I thought he was quite good, some of the points he made, I thought he was charismatic enough now compared to some of the fellas we have here. Now <laughs> I take him any day, but uh, he, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I thought what was clever at some of the things he did, like he uh, he talked about, which I thought was quite funny, he talked about the Spanish government. He was really critical of the Colombians and they had gone to great lengths to show that the efforts of Guaido, backed up by the Americans on the border the couple of days before, on the 23rd of February, to break, they, one of the trucks had been set on fire by their own side, on the Colombian side, and it showed that what was in their trucks, it wasn't humanitarian aid at all. And I mean, sure, of course it wasn't. 20 million of aid. That there was nothing in that truck that the people of uh, Venezuela needed. And when you think that the Americans, the same people who were sending in the aid, had seized 500 million of, of Venezuelan assets the weekend before. If they wanted to aid Venezuela, they could give that back for starters. But uh, So he was very critical of that. He was very critical of the Colombians breaking international law and allowing people cross over the border and deliberately seeking to undermine Venezuela. He was very critical of the EU, of their adherence to the trundling along after the Americans uh, and their violation of international law. And he told a story, you know, he said, oh, you might have heard that uh, voice pop thing that the crowd did on the streets of Spain 
which he'd heard about where they interviewed a load of people in Spain and said, who's the president of, uh, Por of Portugal? And no one knew. And who's the president of France? And no one knew, you know? And so who's the president of Venezuela? And everyone knew it was him. So people were kind of laughing. He said, well, do you know what? He says, my grandparents came over here from Spain. I'm entitled to dual citizens. I've applied for it. And I'm thinking of going and contesting the Spanish election uh, in April because actually your man has his own problems over there and they'd be better off sort of looking after their own. I thought, well, fair play. <laughs> He's right there and uh, I thought yeah fair enough because it's true like there is no perfect government anywhere and he's certainly not perfect and there are huge problems and there's problems with you know corruption and that of course there is they've made mistakes big time but do I believe that they uh, would sit down and talk yes they would and they've consistently called for that and all of the evidence shows that it's the other side that has withdrawn from normal political activity, who won't contest elections, who won't sit down and talk, who are outside the country basically organising for a military intervention or a coup by other means. You mentioned there the fact that electricity is free, water is free, transport. There are a lot of things that are free for the ordinary people. If you're on The Tonight Show, they would say to you, is that not proof of mismanagement of an economy? Yeah, I mean, I think it should be managed better. I think it's good that the assets of the country are used to benefit the people. But that doesn't mean that they don't need to be invested in. I mean, there should be. Should they collect the nominal two bolivars? Well, you could argue, actually, it's a sensible proposition to have free public transport. Uh, a number of even capitalist countries are trying that for climate change reasons, and that's a good thing. So public services provided free, but taxed for appropriately is a good thing, I think. But yeah, so it, it is unsustainable. It is chaotically managed. So the fact that they don't charge people directly for that, I don't have a particular problem with that. They probably should a little bit, certainly for conservation reasons, maybe for electricity and stuff like that. But the, the main thing is, is that they're not investing adequately in them, you know, and I, I think that is a problem, which is part of the problem why the infrastructure is crumbling, but it's not the main problem. But they, the other problems that they didn't use the oil resources really to develop the infrastructure better, to develop indigenous industry, to develop agriculture more, that is problematic, yeah, for sure. The media would have us believe that the support for Guaido is equal to, if not more, than Maduro. What was your perception of that? Oh yeah, well we didn't meet anybody who supported Guaido. Absolutely nobody. That doesn't mean we didn't support people, we didn't meet people who hated Maduro, we certainly did. We didn't meet anybody who supported Guaido at all. And we met a lot of people, including affluent people who, don't like, who do not want military intervention in their country, who are quite conscious of the history of South and Latin America. As I said, it was kind of like, the, people would say the right-wing opposition will call them, because interestingly, there's actually a left-wing opposition to the government as well, who feel they haven't done enough to cater for ordinary people. But that right-wing opposition who would want more, liberalise the economy more, that kind of is at about 40%, but actually they can't get their act together. But Guaido isn't their spokesperson or anything. He's the leader of the smallest group. That's the group which uh, Leopoldo Lopez, who's in prison at the moment for inciting violence. They're actually the most violent of the groups as well. Dangerous individuals who've been educated in America in the tactics of street protest and violence. And one of the scariest things about the illegality of what's gone on 
is that in recognising Guaido, the Americans, followed by the Europeans, have taken that to the next step, have warmed all their international advisers, all their legal advisers. And now the Venezuelan government, of course, made a huge mistake in having a lot of their assets abroad in dollars and in having these people, uh, having their advisers as American and Western people. They didn't diversify any of that. That's their fault. But assets seized, which rightly belong to the Venezuelan people, have been given over to Guaido, an unelected, like his votes, he's got about 16,000 votes in his life, which is, you know, probably what I got in a dull constituency here in a country of 30 million people. That's it. Nobody had heard of him. Nobody knows him. He's 35 years of age. He spent years being educated outside the country. But it's that new breed of educating right wingers in sort of street protest. They're quite violent. They were the people who organised the Guarimbas, where people died a number of years ago, which is why uh, Leopoldo Lopez is, is in jail. Uh, and we, met, we asked a lot of people, are there political prisoners in Venezuela? I would say, generally, people said, generally not. There are people who are in prison who are politically opposed to the government, but they're in prison for criminal activity. So we got examples of, obviously, Leopoldo Lopez, who was inciting serious violence. Guaido has been involved. I mean, in any other country, no one would stand for its, its traitorous behaviour, what Guaido has been involved in. But we actually heard from some people who knew of uh, left-wing people, of anti-government people, of the left, of people in, in Trotskyist groups and so on, some of whom were in prison. And one fellow said to me, look, one of them is my friend. He said, I, uh, he said, I know him, I like him, I don't want to be in prison. But they were using guns and they were uh, being violent. And what other state is going to stand for that? They're not. like So are there political opponents in prison? Yep, but they're not in prison for that. Now, that said, we did hear of one or two others where it was said that charges were orchestrated to say that they're in prison for illegality but actually it's a political accident that was said in in relation to one army person who's in prison how true that is i don't know so the idea like that dissent is penalized and there's a dictatorship is utter nonsense like as i said we we took pictures of and we didn't see it that often because like a lot of countries there's a load of murals up there'd be murals of castro of chavez in particular some of maduro some of some of the other opposition groups and so on but like there's death to maduro graffiti in that as well and i mean nobody's washed it off and we didn't see anybody you know hanging from the gallows for doing it and so the idea that it's dictatorship is nonsense like the media as you know is very critical of everything happening in venezuela if we turn that critical gaze onto europe to a country like france for instance we are now in the 29th straight week of street protests the likes of the gilets jaunes we see video streams on social media of royal police uh, violently f opposing the people and yet Macron is not condemned as a dictator with a, an oppressive regime in the eyes of the mainstream media. They go on about balanced journalism. The hypocrisy of it all would make you puke. What's your opinion on that? It's absolutely incredible. I mean, the amount of focus even that they put on there's a problem with the elections and we can't reckon he's not democratically elected or whatever. Well, this from people who recognise they work with 
the Saudis, for example, when Mohammed bin Salman doesn't get elected at all, like and goes around chopping up people in other or organising for people to be chopped up in other countries. And there's no problem in dealing with him, like because you know, of course he doesn't have bad elections because he doesn't have any. Yeah, Sisi in, in Egypt has just extended his presidency uh, until the year 2032 and no one has a problem with that. The Israelis go around shooting kids in Gaza and no one has a problem with that. I mean, it's absolutely and utterly ridiculous. And they say, oh no, the election wasn't fair. He got, there was six million people participated in that election. Now, some people did boycott the election, uh, but not all of the opposition. There were opposition parties who participated in that election and who would but basically Guaido's crowd and some others withdrew because they knew they weren't going to, to win. So it's utterly hypocritical of the Western media to talk about a lack of democracy in uh, Venezuela and a dictatorship when such behaviour is going on and is being condoned by the West in terms of their other international relations and, as you say, in terms of their activity at home as well, in terms of how they treat people. And there's none of that type of behaviour in Venezuela. Not at the moment, anyway. You said you spoke to people who are critical of Maduro. What were some of the things they were saying? I suppose rather people were giving out about the, the mismanagement of the country and in that sense blaming the government for that. It is chaotic, the way things are organised. A lot of the support, I suppose, left-wing criticism came from people who wanted maybe more resources to develop the communes. Some of the people... He didn't care about the government. They said, look, they haven't done enough here. Things are still difficult in it, so we just want the freedom to be able to organise things for ourselves. Some of the other criticisms, primarily we talked to people who were in the government in Chavez's time, who left the government, really good guy, who just said, look, uh, the warning signs were there for years under Chavez. They had all this oil money coming in. A lot of it, it was great that they used it to elevate the poorest people to develop the health missions, the housing missions, some of the education programmes, but they didn't fit sufficiently invest in infrastructure, in having a reserve there in terms of developing indigenous industry, food production. So the over-reliance on import, and like they, they didn't move away from oil. They didn't move away from like having their assets, everything in that, when the prices were good. And now they're trying to continue what they were providing in that social net, which everybody would support, against a backdrop where obviously the prices of oil have absolutely collapsed and their ability to, to deal is, is, is diminished and it's, it's gone crazy. They even have to import gasoline from America to, in order to be able to sell the oil. It's gone uh, so bad. So people would have been, it would have been that type of criticism that people would have said a mismanagement really of the resources that were there. Some people would say, look, they need to bring some of the more moderate opposition on board more. So some of the more wealthier people we would have met would have had that argument that, look, there, there needs to be more involvement from those people who do want to trade with the Americans, who do want to, we have to have that level, they would say, and they haven't been open. And I suppose critically, what a lot of people gave, well, what some people gave out about was the government didn't do enough to develop relationships abroad that they weren't they should have known given oil and given the attempts to overthrow Chavez and knowing what the Americans have done in the rest of Latin America and the shift to the right, you know, of the election of Bolsonaro, the situation in Argentina and so on. They didn't go out and develop friendships in Europe, which they should have. 
I mean, we would have said if you looked at even countries which have suffered under a blockade, the likes of Iran, now I know they've more than twice the population of Venezuela, but they're self-sufficient and they're not in the same dire situation that the Venezuelans are. So people being critical saying they could have done other things to bolster themselves because they should have realised that this was coming because there were so many attempts under Chavez and because you only have to look at what the Americans do in Latin America they were bold enough to try and at least make a bit of an effort to stand against neoliberalism. The Americans aren't going to tolerate that. So a lot of people would have been far-sighted enough that they, they should have seen this coming and they didn't prepare and they didn't look for friends in Europe or go around or do the, the diplomatic scene. So that type of, of, of criticism. A lot of the ordinary people, it was just they weren't making ends meet and a bit like people here giving out, you know, that they didn't have enough ones given out about the area not being cleaned up and the usual stuff. You mentioned there about left-wing criticism of Maduro. You're a left-wing politician in a right-wing government in Ireland. And even if we had a change of government in the next election, you'd still be a left-wing TD in a right-wing government. So taking that on board, the left-wing Venezuela, it's well known that in 2002, after the attempted coup, on Chavez, he forgave the perpetrators on the basis of his religion, which by all accounts, he's a very religious man and he was a lot more popular than Maduro. So what is the left-wing frustration with Maduro? And if you were in that position, what would you do in those circumstances in particular to fight the right wing? Yeah, and I mean, well, I suppose there's what we saw and I'm certainly not claiming to be an expert on Venezuela or anything like that. And it's a sort of what we've tried to do by going there is at least give uh, an eyewitness account. And obviously we need to link that with more research ourselves and, and better educating ourselves on some of the, the background stuff as well. But I suppose in terms of the opposition that's there, I don't know. I know the Communist Party in Venezuela, for example, had been in government with Maduro, but withdrew. I haven't found out what the basis of the withdrawal was but they weren't obviously happy maybe it was the failure I think it was over the corruption as far as I know I think because it is the case that the key ministries are in the hands of the army and that is a problem on the one hand it's a for Maduro it means you're keeping them on site but it's a problem like the head an army general is the head of the oil company an army general is the head of revenue they have all the key posts and have the money there's definitely money gone missing and ended up abroad and pilfered and all of that, well, you get that everywhere. So that's definitely the case. So people on the left would have been critical of that. There's others, I got the impression that some of it wasn't really hugely organised, but what you had was a lot of the, the communes and the local groups in the different areas had kind of withdrawn from, not withdrawn from the national struggle, but said, look, the government aren't going to do, let's concentrate on making our community so really decentralise and control and running their own locality as best they could and maybe to hell with the national scene, we'll do what we can here, a bit of that. Now a lot of those people, when it comes down to it, and if there was another election now, I think Maduro would probably win it if the other opposition, because at the end of the day, they're going to say, well, if he's the last one stand, they're going to trump plump for him rather than one of the right-wing oppositions and that's probably why he hung on and they're probably still at that stage. I'm not sure whether Maduro, actually there's probably a much better chance of someone else from Chavismo, what we loosely call all of that Chavismo. It's not hugely organised but it's an identity with what we had was a country you hear in the West, oh 
Venezuela was one of the richest countries in whatever per head of capita. Yeah, of course, but it wasn't divided per head of capita. It was you had a small number of incredibly wealthy people siphoning off that. And actually what Chavez did was redistribute a lot of that. It's not distributed enough and it's still mismanaged and all that. But they did lift an awful lot of people uh, out of that. So so and I mean, what would you do like in that scenario? You need to. There is a problem with mismanagement and waste and they need to go after the people responsible for that and they need to take ownership of it. There's a problem with the army. There is a problem. Everybody knows that. The people know that. We met people who were on the border with Venezuela with the, with the humanitarian aid. They're people who train militarily in the people's militias and in the reserves. We asked them who trained them and some of the army trained them and oversee that. So they do, when I say like the army, there's a lot of ordinary people in the army, but the tops of the army have certainly siphoned off an awful lot. An ordinary person in the army gets about $10 a month and probably gets the, the government top up and all that kind of thing. Now, they're generally siding with the government at the moment because most of the people, they certainly don't want Guaido or any of that sort of nonsense. But you've got to deal with that. And the people on the border who had been to the border said, well, yeah, we're training militarily because if there is an invasion, we can't rely on the army and we're not going to rely on them. And they told us there's plenty of weaponry and all that. And interestingly, when you go into the restaurants and that they all have the sort of posters on the wall, no guns allowed, you know, beside the no smoke and there's a no guns allowed sign on all of the, all of the buildings, which is including the hairdressers, which I found uh, ironic. But in any case, uh, that was a bit mad. But um, so issues around the army and control. And I mean, on one level, you could say it's a good thing that you have the, a lot of ordinary people who have trained and who see themselves as defending their communities and, and uh, the gains of the revolution and, and defending their country. But that battle, they've still the army and, and the top's been there. So you'd need to address that. They need to be taken out of the control of the state companies and certainly democratise that more. I think they need a lot more expertise and that there as well. I'd imagine that's why the Russians are over at the moment, is to give them some of that technical background. It's, it's sad that the, if you look at things like the educational gains, and they did make gains, but I remember one of the, one of the translators at the event was a, a university professor and he said his wages are just decimated. He was thinking of leaving. He certainly can't think of getting married or getting a house or anything like that. He lives in a barrio-like where he felt at night going home, not safe to walk. Nobody goes in to, uh, out on the streets at night beyond a certain time. And, in those areas, he said, look, it's, it, life is, is very difficult. But of his class, I think there was either 22 or 24 of them, and there was only four of them left in the country, you know? So stuff like that. And the kids came in to give us a talk. And we said, well, what's it like? How have things changed over recent times? How do you find it in school? And they said, oh, well, are you still getting fed in school? Yeah, yeah, they still get the food in the school, but a lot of the teachers have left. And this is a huge problem. And when we raised that with the people, they said the teachers better wages in Colombia and Brazil. They've been well educated in Venezuela uh, and they can move there. And now the sad thing is, is when they move there, they're probably bottom of the pile there and they might, relatively speaking, get better wages than they get in Venezuela. But it's not that they're living the high life or anything, but Venezuela's been bled of those. So you've got to stop. They've got to pay people better and you've got to deal with the hyperinflation. So I suppose dealing with all of that are stuff that you need to do but no a government can't do that you need to sort of empower the people to do that and that's a positive like there are huge levels of people's involvements in various areas but i suppose it's trying to do what chavez did knit them together a bit 
into the you know assemblies and all of that kind of thing but that's kind of fallen down some of it i i kind of got the impression and i i could be completely wrong that that some of those had kind of retreated into their own areas because it was just too hard and that that's where the emphasis is now maybe out of the other the situation now there might be a tendency to all come to the point of attack and i think if there wasn't an, a direct invasion or anything like that 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 would happen but uh, they're the things you would need to argue for. So when I say the left up, I mean kind of people who certainly don't want things going, you know, the resource being up, but not necessarily an organised left opposition, even though there are a lot of probably small left groups and that. People wouldn't even probably call themselves, they call themselves Chivismo. People talk about the revolution and say, I couldn't care less about the government, but I'm not having our country undermined, our sovereignty, or I'm not having the revolution taken off us, that kind of stuff. We all know why the US is doing this. It's purely about getting their hands on Venezuela's oil. Everyone knows this. The naked imperialism of it. With the exposed phone call to Guaido saying, we'll back you up if you make a coup attempt. So how do you see the situation resolving itself? I think since the initial rush to the head, a la the usual Donald Trump way, now obviously it was organised with the Americans, but the, and it was teed up that the Europeans would come in or the key European countries would come in straight away. That was organised beforehand. I think probably a lot of the Europeans now realise that was a bit premature. I'd say a lot of the Americans realise that was a bit premature, that they were sold a pup as well. It's obvious that since the, there had been an effort around the early part of the year, and particularly around the efforts to develop the humanitarian, that there would be a push, get Maduro out quickly, impose Guaido, and then open up the economy. That didn't happen. When that didn't happen, and it still hasn't happened, the situation has changed now and the international balance has tipped a bit as well. So what we have now is a stalemate. How that will resolve itself has not been determined yet, but there is a window of opportunity to alter the direction of this. I think that's very clear. And the, the space hasn't been filled. What you've got is a bit of a phony war. You've Guaido going around like an idiot. Obviously, speaking, he says he's going to have a march on Caracas. Well, if he wants a march, why hasn't he got organised one then? Obviously, because he can't. So he's going around to these areas pretending to have sort of street meetings. But I mean, the aerial footage of them is, they're embarrassingly small. But you can do wonders with a picture. I mean, we could not believe the when we came back all the wall-to-wall -wall coverage of his return to Venezuela. It was just absolute nonsense. Like, you have that, he's going around sort of rallying around, but really just making the international calls. I think the fact that at the, and I can't think, there was a financial, international financial banking event organised by the Chinese about two weeks ago, and the Americans tried to insist that Guaido's representative would be the representative of Venezuela. And the Chinese said no. That was a turning point as well. Now the event I think was cancelled, but they didn't get their way on that. There was a standing of ground. The Russians have come in now as well. And I think in that context, the Europeans have, they've certainly said pretty much openly that there's going to be no military intervention. Interestingly, Bolsonaro and the Brazilian government have said no military intervention. So it's a changed sort of a situation and ironically I believe evangelists don't support war which is an interesting sort of a thing and that can be exploited too but so Brazil have said it and so there's a, a change there. Now on the other side 
what their spin is and what the Americans have tried to do is tighten the economic squeeze and starve them, disrupt the infrastructure. And that's, I've no doubt that that's really going to have a, a scary impact and a very destabilising impact on people. Not that they're going to want Guaido to come in or the Americans to come in, but it's going to make life really difficult for them. So there's a space there for talks. And the only way in which you can resolve this is people get around and start talking. And they can't do that if there's a threat of intervention or if the economy has been strangled in the way in which it is. But we've got to at least get to a space where they can talk. And maybe we need to sort of say, well, look, at, we need a space to allow. They call it humanitarian aid. They don't actually need humanitarian aid, but they do need the economy to be allowed to breathe. And they do need certainly help from abroad, but the type of help they need. So why not? There's help coming in. The Russians have given, you know, sold them grain and all of that. So why, if people are saying they want humanitarian aid, let's do real humanitarian aid. Uh, other stuff that could be looked at is the assets that are, the international assets that are all over the world that are just being handed over here to the uh, right-wing opposition, which is definitely going to be used to fund mercenaries and will cause deaths destabilisation, it'll be going back to the dark days of it, it'll be kind of like these armed death squads nearly going into areas, picking fellas out, intimidating people, destabilising, like that's one, that's one future if things don't alter. So it's kind of, that mix is, we're, we're in a which direction is it going to go? I think a lot of forces internationally have realised, mm, hang on a minute here, so there's gonna ha there has been it's not that there's been a pulling back but I actually honestly think they don't know what to do so somebody has to take a lead in this it can either go in two directions either a decisive force steps forward to look at the idea of talks have the Russians and the Chinese enough interests economic interest in that area to do that or would they be received neutral enough by the Americans to allow them to participate in that probably not but. Could the EU do that? Well, they could. Have they the will to do it? I don't know. Interestingly, the Vatican were playing a bit of that role, but the Americans and Guaido have started to target the Vatican because the strategy of Guaido and those is to not have talks. Because if they get to a space where there's talks being facilitated, then it's game over for him game over so we need to get to that place and we met people who would have worked with the Venezuelan government in an international sense who would have met the Americans on behalf of the Venezuelan government who would have met key players who said like what the targeting like there's been some targeting of the Pope personally like sort of saying that uh, the Vatican Bank has uh, taken the money of these chivistas and that's why the Pope won't uh, recognise Guaido, like absolute nonsense, like they tweet this stuff with like a picture of a bank account that's supposed to have the money of say Chavez's daughter in the Vatican bank, like in a convenient Twitter feed besides some other Venezuelan, utter rubbish but like really putting on and, and the, the, the Catholic hierarchy in Venezuela are believed to be very, very right wing and uh, Venezuelan cardinals and that will be very right wing. Uh, but others aren't like we met former minister uh, under Chavez, very interesting guy who had actually been asked to go and address Catholic leaders and church leaders in Peru to see could they come up with a negotiated role. So it is possible. There is a lot of people looking at what the hell can we do here and somebody has to save face. Now, what will the outcome of that be? So say you get people around the table, I think that's possible. Who's going to lead it? I don't know. 
I do know there's a lot of efforts going on internationally under various guises to pull that off. Will it come off or not? I don't know. But then when they sit around, what are they going to argue for? What's the outcome? You can't sit around without the gov Venezuelan government. They have to be part of it. And Maduro has been. There's no point in saying, oh, have another election straight away. I think there will be, and there should be another presidential election, but there needs to be other elections organised probably first. That's probably the better way of doing it. I can't see Guaido's crowd sitting around and up, but there are others who will, of the opposition, who will sit around. And there are good people in the there who will deal. They're probably, they need to more normalise their relationship with the US. There will have to be some sort of a freeing up, probably, in the short term, or certainly sitting down with them. But they also need to look at, for example, the international assets, like in the none of that money is coming back to Venezuela. That needs to come back to the people. And everybody who has been found guilty of corruption, doesn't matter who they are, should be prosecuted for that. I mean, the irony in this is, and I believe that there's absolute evidence out there that the likes of your man, is it Ramirez, the um, former one of the army fellas, and the former attorney general are the most two of the most vitriolic opponents of the Venezuelan government, uh, calling Maduro a dictator, arguing for US intervention. These people were in office under Chavez. In, in certainly in, in Ramirez's cases, there's absolute evidentiary proof of the amount of millions, if not billions, that he has stashed off and that the former Attorney General has stashed outside the country as well. So let's say, go after it. Yeah, why not? But that should be for everybody and get that money back for the Venezuelan people because it's, it's uh, huge amounts of it. And I mean, there were people out in Europe and out internationally trying to get back some of this stuff, legal people working on this. Lawsuits will be filed for some of it and hopefully that can sort of play a role as well. I think it's a combination of that, a combination of like the people on the streets defending the, the gains, I suppose, that are there. Nobody knows what's going to happen next, but there is a space there and it's going to be filled by one or the other. Uh, and maybe it'll be temporarily filled by one. And But you'd be kind of looking saying something's going to have to come to a head as well. Will Guaido survive? I don't know. Like Certainly the government aren't going to kill him. Absolutely not. If anyone kills him, it'll be his own lot, for sure. Just something that popped into my head there while you were speaking. A lot of Latin American countries suffer from a thing called machismo. How does Venezuela fit into that? Did you come across it, this machismo culture? A good gauge of it is how gay people are treated, whether there's a tolerance or not for them. Did you find anything like that? I didn't see any problem with Yeah, no, I think they're very good on gay issues, I think. But in terms of actually what is a bit shocking was the level, it's quite obvious, the number of... They're hugely young. The amount of teenage and uh, pregnancies, oh my God, it's absolutely striking. The amount of young people with kids was a bit shocking. Now, on the positive side, there was public education campaigns and posters about breastfeeding. So you have loads of people around breastfeeding, which was good. I saw so we went on the underground. There was a lot of talk about saying, and everybody had warned us all the government, don't go out at night, don't go out on the streets. And even people say, oh, we wouldn't go home now, we wouldn't walk at night. And a lot of Venezuelan people themselves who were there who live in the barrios, we said, that's unusual, like. Whatever about like being from outside your community, being afraid in your own community is a bit feckin' strange at night. But then other people said, look, don't worry, generally during the day you're okay, don't show the phones or that kind of thing, but you're generally okay. We walked out all the time and we were absolutely fine. People were actually very nice. I mean, one girl ate the head off me because 
gave out to him because he was taking pictures saying basically, look, you flipping Egypt, will you put your phone away? Because people did tell us, but when we went on the metro and it was absolutely jammerous and a beautiful modern system in many ways, it was the jewel of South America, car carries millions every day, which again shows you when they cut the power, the disruption of that, because people are left miles away from where they live and it's huge, like millions of people affected like it's a, an incredibly destructive thing to do like but um so we didn't find it unsafe we found it very nice and on the metro like people uh, giving seats to you know in a nice way to elderly people or to young ones with babies and all that kind of thing i thought it was nice you did see couples going out and you know fellas holding their babies and that kind of thing but they have a huge problem with teenage pregnancies and and people told us that like you know as well so i didn't find anything inappropriate or sort of sexist in the behavior like typical latin america there are good looking people and lovely looking women and plenty of good looking men as well and uh, you know and, and they like strutting their stuff like but uh, not in a bad way and certainly from what we heard there's no persecution of gay people as far as i know but actually it's interesting about point you made about chavez being religious because maduro's religious as well and uh, one of the things in, in the speech that he said was when he spoke to the conferences. And now I know there's a lot of you here who are communists, like, and I know there's a lot of you people who left-wingers and you don't believe in God, but you know, I can tell you God exists. He said, God exists because we're here, like, and we survived this long. He said, you don't believe me, but God exists. But, uh, so they're obviously really religious. It is in there, and the church is like, we kind of popped into a church when we were there just to see, you know, those people yeah, coming in and awesome. out and all that kind of thing. Not now packed to the gills, and uh, it is interesting. Obviously, I'd say Latin America is um, split in the church because we heard afterwards exactly that point that I believe there is a campaign against the Vatican because the Pope was actually playing quite a good role and there was talks going on. But I believe the Venezuelan cardinals are ultra, ultra right wing. The Venezuelan cardinals are, I believe, to the right of Guaido. They're that bad. Like they are absolutely unbelievable unbelievable i don't think the pope even talks to them but it's mad when you hear that and we heard that from people who would work with the vatican and who would work with the maduro government be that close to the situation who would have gone to talks with the americans who would be in talks with the brazilians incredibly interesting evangelists seemingly don't like seemingly your man they've had talks with your man i'm obviously bolsonaro is an absolute nut but the other fella is the one who's really in charge the second in command who's the army fella even though he was elected, but he's an army fella, he's elected. I think they realise that it give them, and there's a view, of course, as well, that you know, the Americans have to be careful. They have a lot of Latin America, South America back in the fold, sort of back in their box. They're in a better position. They push it too far, that can be tipped over the other edge. Argentina is sort of getting into the 50-50. They go too far on this, then they have a scenario where it's back to where they were. I mean, genuinely, I think they don't know what to, I think genuinely internationally, I think the Americans have messed up. A Trump isn't going to say that. And they, there has to be, how do you do a way, they have to be given away where they save face. And how do you create a thing that they save face? Save, I don't know. The Russians going over there, is that a help? Is that a hindrance? I don't, I think the feeling, everybody thinks, I don't think militarily they'd go in, not directly. And I don't even think we're directly bombing directly. Like Finally, we're supposed to be a neutral country, and yet we jumped on the bandwagon of supporting Guaido. What do you say to that? I mean, I, I genuinely found it incredible. And I mean, obviously, we've seen a hell of a lot of awful things that this government has done, and we're not naive enough to, and we know how much they breach 
neutrality day in, day out. We know how much they just spend the need to the US because of multinational investment here. But I genuinely was shocked that the EU and Ireland supported recognising Guaido without a shred of it. Normally they try and have at least a fig leaf of legality and that the fact that they were willing to blatantly ignore that was utterly shocking. And when you look at then Trump going on and deciding, do you know what, actually the Golan Heights belongs to Israel and I'm going to say it and now it's theirs and I'm going to sign that. But that's where that type of thing leads. And at least in that sense, the Irish government came out and said, well, look, uh, you know, there's no basis for this in law at all. It's an illegal act and we won't be changing our position. So on the one hand, they can do it when they want. Partly, they're, it's not surprising. They'll do anything, anything to sort of bend over to please their masters in America, we know, but now in the EU. So the fact of, and you know, when we raised it with Coveney, he said, look it, you might have noticed that we were the 30, 23rd and last country to sign up. I gave it an awful lot of thought, but it was obviously the thought they gave, because the night before he signed it, they were going around currying favour to get on the UN Security Council or to go over for some international meeting. That's why they did it because they wanted to, you know, get with Brexit coming up. We need to rely on our friends in Europe. We don't need, we have to rely on our friends and that's their thing all the time. So it's not surprising and it's utterly hypocritical and we'll do what we can to continue to point that out. I mean, the fact that they have no problem in dealing with people who don't have elections who are hugely problematic and they, then they say, oh, they're not dealing with this because of an election a fella gets, he's more of a percentage support than flipping Fine Gael have like in this government have ridiculous and it's even his enemies saying that right thanks very much claire for your time you've certainly opened my eyes and i'm sure the people listening will find this conversation very interesting cheers thanks very much thank you for listening to the irish spark podcast if you like the show please give us a review on itunes or whatever platform you're listening from it really helps us out and helps the show to reach more people if you'd like to get in touch please send us an email at theirishspark at gmail.com we would love to hear from you follow us on social media we are on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram the details are in the description we hope to see you again in a couple of weeks for our next episode take care